Welcome to How to Make It in the City on WBAI in New York 99.5 FM. This is a show where we explore both the practical and spiritual aspects of making it. This show is for artists, entrepreneurs, dreamers, and visionaries who are determined to end the cycle of working soul-crushing jobs just to pay bills. This is where we learn how to live our mission while making a great living. This is where we learn how to do well by doing good. This is where we learn how to step into our divine calling while entering a space of financial freedom and abundance. I am your host, Ama Kari Kari Yawson. In August of 2015, I quit my six-figure salary day job as a corporate lawyer to step into my purpose of healing through storytelling. I now travel the country performing my stories, such as my debut book, Sune's Gift, while facilitating presentations and training sessions for schools, universities, governments, and corporations. Loved ones, it has been quite a bumpy ride, and I have a long way to go. Let's figure out how to make it in this city together. Financial independence is a goal that most of us have. We realize that the stress of wondering how we are going to pay bills month to month or year to year takes a toll on us. It takes a toll on our physical health, our mental health. We want to be free. We want to break into financial freedom and to be free of worry. We want to feel secure. Our guest this week, Melanie Fodrovic, was able to achieve this goal at the mere age of 27. Melanie Bodrovic had a dream and wanted to do more than just work as a barmaid. She defied odds from making minimum wage to becoming a millionaire at 27 years old. Her tenacity to learn about the real estate market and build a multi-million dollar real estate portfolio by the age of 27 without even breaking into her family or friends' wealth led her to write the number one international best-selling book, The Wealthy Barmaid. Her first investment was buying a single-family house at the age of just 22. This led her to acquiring a multi-million dollar portfolio of real estate soon after. She then purchased commercial property and founded her own restaurant and bar. Becoming a real estate mogul at such a young age wasn't always easy. But Bajrovic believes financial freedom is attainable for anyone. And in her latest book, she shares her five secrets to building wealth. We are going to hear about that book. We are going to hear about those secrets. Welcome, Melanie Vajrovic. Melanie? Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, we are so blessed to hear from you because it's such an inspirational story. So please tell us about your upbringing. Where did you grow up? How were your parents? What did they do for a living? Sure, sure. So I was born and raised in Niagara Falls, Canada, Um, lived there my entire life. My family immigrated here to Canada from the former Yugoslavia back in 1970. That's where my grandparents, uh, it was their decision to come here. They wanted, they knew there could be so much more to life. It was communism uh, back in Yugoslavia at that time. Everybody lived fine and 
um, you know, everybody had the basic necessities, but my grandfather really wanted more for us, for his future generations. He was big on that for his family, and I'm so grateful that they made that decision um, back in 1970. And when they were here, they just, you know, they worked, 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 any job they could get their hands on for a while. They didn't know any English. They didn't know anything about the Canadian culture or banking systems or anything. But they ended up eventually doing really well. And my grandfather always knew it was two things. You needed your own business and you needed to invest in real estate. So those were his two goals. And he eventually, once they saved up some money, started doing that. And my parents and ended up being in the bar industry as well. So I was about one year old when they bought their first little restaurant bar, and then that turned into two. A much bigger location was their second. But when I was 12 years old, I started working really, really young for them in the kitchen. And I just went on from there to busing and serving, hostessing, and eventually bartending. And I did that for about 15 years. And that was kind of the industry of choice with my family. So that's where the barmaid comes from. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you come from multiple generations of entrepreneurs. Did either of your parents hold full-time day jobs, so to speak? They did back in the day. So same as my grandparents, they did as well in the beginning. My father used to work at a man, uh, manufacturing factory. My mother worked also. Uh, she had a few jobs or she was an employee, but they ended up becoming you know, self-employed fairly young. They were in their 30s when they bought their first uh, bar restaurant. Wow, this is wonderful. So you are the third generation bar owner in your family and okay. third generation real estate investor, so to speak, because they bought the property. They weren't always renting the spaces that they operated in. That's correct. I was really lucky to have seen that and to have witnessed that from such a young age because it taught me so much. Not only you know, just watching how business works, how, you know, real estate, what, what I was glad to, I'm self-taught for the most part, but what I got to see was with real estate, I, I knew I, there was nothing to be too scared of. Nobody lost their shirt in any real estate. I knew it was fairly predictable and they could control that investment as much as you can in any type of investment. So I was really lucky to see that. Not only that, but their just their work ethic and all that stuff that I got to really witness growing up is kind of what shaped me and helped me create all my discipline and work ethic moving forward. Wow. No, this was it was just a blessing because for most people, purchasing even a home is scary. But in your case, this was kind of all around you. It was just normal. This is what people do. So no, I do think it's an extraordinary background. But for your grandparents and your parents, they were self-employed, but were they financially free, you would say? That's a great question. Good definition because, distinction, sorry, they worked really hard for what they had. So in terms of financial freedom, I view financial freedom as not only covering all your basic necessities, you're okay, you're self-employed, which gives you your own financial independence. You're not dependent on the government or an employer or, mm -hmm. you know, a second spouse's income to survive. But financial freedom, I believe, is when you when you have a lot of passive investments, passive income coming to you that you don't technically have to go into work, where you have systems in place where money is still coming in and your money is making money on top of itself without you physically having to work. So in that regard, I wouldn't say that they were financially free. They worked for that every day, day in and day out. And they worked really hard for that. And they still do, as a matter of fact, to this day. <laughs> wow, this is wonderful. I, for our listeners, I want us to hone in on that because I think that in 
your answer just now, you gave us many of the nuggets and you gave us many of the distinctions uh, between those different words. So financially secure, I think most people would say being financially secure means you have a job that's fairly stable. It's not a job that lets people go all of the time. Maybe they have six months of income in the back. So even if they were to lose their job, they would have six months to be able to look at for another job without feeling really stressed and really, really, really tense. So that might be security, right? Let's think of jobs that people think of as secure. Many people think government jobs are secure. The government hardly lays people off. People think a teaching job is secure. I mean, sometimes they say mm-hmm. you nearly have to kill a student to get fired as a teacher in some public <laughs> school districts, right? So that's financial security. You also mentioned financial independence, meaning those people who have those jobs with pensions that are seen as secure, where there are hardly any layoffs and they've been able to save and they have six months to a year in the bank account. They are they may call themselves financially secure, but they're not financially independent because you never know. It may be rare, but it certainly does happen in the school district I live in. At one point, they closed two schools and a number of teachers got laid off. So they were not independent, meaning they still depended on another entity besides themselves for money. So financial independence, someone could be financially independent and financially secure in that they are self-employed. They have six months to a year worth of income in the bank. They feel that they're secure. They feel as if they're also independent because they don't depend on anyone else. But those people are not financially free. And what you've told us is financially free is when you actually do not have to do anything incremental in terms of your physical labor. And the systems are in place where money comes in all of your needs are met on a consistent mm-hmm. basis without any incremental effort. So for you, was that one of your goals? You had seen the independence. Perhaps you had seen the security because their businesses were doing well. But was your goal the freedom? Absolutely. From day one, I mean, when I was really young. I've always been a very ambitious and hungry type of person, always looking, searching for more, seeing what can one accomplish in, one, you know, in my lifetime and how successful could one be? What are the differences between why some people struggle and suffer versus some people make it look so easy and they're just living the lap of luxury. And it seems like, what are the differences? So from a really young age, it started firstly, of course, with financial security. I just wanted to make sure no matter what, that I'm going to be okay. I never wanted to rely on any one person, on any employer or on any government to fund my life for me or to make sure, you know, just like you said, you never know the unexpected happens when you allow that in somebody else's hands. So I never wanted that. I wanted to make sure first and foremost, I'm going to be okay. That's where the real estate component really came in. And we can talk about that later. But I was so hungry then after that, once I learned, okay, I figured this out. I'm secure. You know, I can pay for my life. No, no, no. We we need to backtrack. How did you figure out the security? So let us know. So you you were working as a bartender, a barmaid, a, a, I don't know, cleaner-upper in all of your parents' businesses. You go off to college Mm -hmm. yourself, right? I believe you have a business degree undergrad or a marketing degree undergrad, correct? That's correct. Yeah, I have my undergraduate degree, a business degree in marketing, and then I also did my MBA after that. Again, I concentrated in marketing. It was just one of my goals since I was really young. I always wanted an MBA. And so I went ahead and did that all the while working. I worked at other places besides my parents' uh, restaurants as well. I worked in Toronto and other cities nearby. I also did some marketing and public relations jobs. But through that, that was sort of where the financial security came. And I was fine. I could pay for my basic life necessities. Mm -hmm. And I was okay. And then when real estate happened for me when I was 22, 
um, that's where I learned the sort of the independence part in terms of no matter what happens, this is my cushion. This is going to secure me. God forbid I either lose a job, I can't find a job, or I'm for some reason physically unable to work. That was always, I'm sort of driven by that by that fear and that necessity of having myself a, a nice safety net because, again, I don't want to rely on anybody for anything. I wanted to make sure that it's that it's all in my control and whether how much, especially as an entrepreneur, I, the amount of effort you put in is exactly what your output's going to be. So it's okay, purely perfect. based on so, my So let's get, let's get clearer. So at 22, sure. you finished your undergrad degree and you were working, you were employed in, in PR? Yes, and all the while I was working at bars at, at nighttime. Okay, great. So you're there working multiple jobs. You have a day job and you work at yes. bars at night. And so how did yes. you make your first real estate purchase? Tell us what happened. Sure. So by that time, I had been working now in the bars for solid you know, 10, 12 years at that point, And I had saved every penny that I possibly could. Mm. Um, my expenses, I kept them really low. I didn't go out a lot. There were definitely sacrifices I made growing up and being a young teen and a young adult. But I wanted it so bad. I just knew there was more out there. And I thought if I spend all my money, you know, nothing's going to change for me. And I didn't want to be a bartender forever. Mm -hmm. So what happened was I had enough money in my bank account at that point that I had been saving for years. And I thought, okay, now is the time. It was actually my father who suggested to me, he goes, okay, first of all, that money's now not doing anything for you. Chances are like most people, it's really easy to spend that money. I think it's best. Why don't you go put it in, into a real estate uh, investment property? And so he really gave me that idea. He goes, that's the best thing you can probably do with that, those funds right now. And so I started looking and I was just researching properties. You know, I looked through about a hundred of them till I finally found a great, great deal. It was in my neighborhood as well, where I'm from in Canada, Niagara Falls. Mm -hmm. And that's how I. And this was just a regular property. single family home. Correct. Yep. And your bedroom, goal was to, to purchase it and then to rent it out. Absolutely. Yes. I, my, my favorite strategy is long-term buy and holds. I'm not, I wasn't looking for any quick flips or cash money from that deal. I, now, I wanted how much did you save at this point? How much did you need for this down payment? I had how about, much you saved? Yeah, I had about $20,000 saved at that point okay, and that's great. what I used. So you have 20K, you use it for a down payment on this house. The rest of it was finance. So you did have a mortgage on it? Correct. I had I did a conventional loan. Yeah. Okay. Great. So you do this conventional loan. Did you hire a manager? Or did you manage yourself and 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 put tenants in? How did that work? I managed it myself. So I went in. There it was definitely outdated. This family had lived there for generations. So some work needed to be done, mm -hmm. and I did as much of it as, as I could by myself. Mm -hmm. And I hired some people. My family was super helpful at that time, and I. So I renovated it to be at a point where I could charge a decent rent mm. um, and command a good rent price based on what was offered in my area. And I managed it myself. Okay, great. I, so you I get a family in there, in there. And so yep. now you're getting rental income at the age of 22, 23. Correct. Because what you rent it out for is more than the mortgage or whatever. And so you're getting that income. Okay, great. So then what, what happens next? So after that point, I... Again, my initial idea for this one house was just, hey, it's, I just know it's a great investment. It'll be great to be there. It can, you know, I can use it in retirement if I want mm. to. Either once it's all paid off, I can live off that cash flow or I can sell it. 
and, you know, see how long that money would last me in retirement or, God forbid, if anything wrong really happens, that was my cushion. So now I felt secure was my whole point of the story. Mm-hmm. It made me feel like, great, I have this cushion no matter what. I can sell it or live off of those cash flow payments. But I had no idea how fruitful it was going to be in the beginning. Mm. As I said, it, initially it was just like, oh, this is great. I'm not even going to think about it. It's just there for my retirement. Once I started realizing how real estate values increase, how your equity goes up while your loan payments go down, and then you know, learning about how you can leverage that too. You can leverage equity. Um, it's just constantly an appreciating asset with so many benefits. I was kind of like appalled. I wasn't savvy back then. I just, you know, was like, yeah, I think this is a good thing to do. Who knows mm-hmm. what's going to happen? But it's something there as a cushion. So once I realized this, I was like, whoa, this is this stuff's really cool. This real estate thing's awesome. So what I I continued working in bars, working in PR, working in marketing all the while, and I was doing my MBA, but. I kept saving, again, as much as I possibly could, and I did that consecutively for the next three, four homes. Mm. And I just kept, once I had enough money, I, I invested more all, or again, in my area, in Niagara Falls, Canada. I stayed kind of close to home, especially because I was managing them myself. I wanted to make sure they were in close proximity to each other to make my life easier, and I could always check in on them, check up on them, do renovations, you know, screen tenants, do show them around, all those things like that. And that was essentially the, the system that I followed wow. for my first few homes. Yeah. Okay. And so now, wow. So basically this, this sounds very practical for anyone listening. Yeah. It's like, this is something many of us can do. Many of us can, especially those of us who have children, we can start them out early working for us or working for, you know, a, yeah. a, a relative or a friend, saving their money. You would save 20000 by the eight time you were 22 years old, invested in a single family home, and then continued to save money, put another down payment, save money, put another down payment. So within what, by the time you were, you, you know, you were 23, 24, you had a number of different single family homes that you were managing and that you had invested in. Correct. Wow. Okay, great. So now, meanwhile, (laughs) at this time, you're still working as a bartender at night and you're still, uh, still basically also working in PR and you're getting your MBA. Now you Mm -hmm. said something which was really interesting, which I want to dovetail in, in your book, The Wealthy Barmaid. You said that although you have both undergraduate and graduate degrees, graduate degrees in business with a focus on marketing, you say that school does not really teach individuals how to do well in business and become financially independent. Can you please explain? Absolutely. What I learned, I mean, from seeing the the level of financial literacy that's prevalent today, I think it really falls on the education system. That's kind of, we've missed a big step here. What we learn in school is essentially, you know, single file, walk in a line, you hear the bell. That means go into your class, sit down. And what are you supposed to do when you're at your chair? You zip it. You be quiet. You listen. <laughs> you follow instructions. That's what we're taught, right? So it's this mentality of, how to be an employee, essentially. It's like sit down, be quiet, follow rules, follow instructions, and do as you're told. So starting with that entire mindset and that mind frame of how they teach you, what they're teaching you, just in terms of um, that component alone, we're not even talking about the content. Yeah, just the conditioning conditioning of how you're supposed to be as a human being. Yes. Exactly. So they're conditioning you right off the hop to to follow, to just do as you're told and, and follow instructions. Now, in terms of the actual content, we're not taught in school ever. And I think it's such a, a, it's really sad for me to see this because this is how we run into trouble. And people later, especially maybe without the advantage that I had of seeing 
people in my family doing business or investing in things, how else would somebody know? How else would people mm-hmm. even come up with that idea? When I wrote my book, when I, I actually had a huge article in the Toronto Star about um, detailing what I was doing, uh, the journalist thought it would be great for people to see that, you know, I was just working as a bartender, investing in properties on the side. I didn't think it was anything special. This was just like, I don't know, what else do you do with your money? Obviously, you should invest it. Put it sure. in appreciating assets. It's just natural. But it was fascinating to me to see so many people had no clue. They were really like, how, what? I mean, where would you even come up with that idea? So I realized the financial literacy, even in school, never mind at home or anywhere else in our society, is not being taught that you need to earn it, save it, and then invest your money wisely. That's the path. We've never, they've never covered that in any class anywhere in school. They're not teaching us about. And you're saying young even students. even in business school, mm-hmm. even in business school. Now I went I went to business school myself. I went to Wharton, so I completely mm-hmm. agree with you. I think you wow. are taught how to be an employee, and even in my entrepreneurship classes, I think yes. that the entrepreneurship classes could could not could only go but so far because they were all theoretical. Yeah. Like I I think any entrepreneurial Correct. class should have people starting a business in class, literally. And I took entrepreneurship classes in Wharton, and none of us actually started a business. We wrote business plans. We talked about it. We read case studies. Mm -hmm. But did we actually do it? There's something completely different about actually doing it. You're absolutely right. The entire system is teaching us how to be an employee, whether it's on a higher level corporate level like you and I did in business school, you know, or or just being an employee like I talked from all the way through elementary, high school, and any other post uh, high school education that, that kids do, they're not teaching us anything about our personal finances, most importantly. That's yes, sure, they true, teach yeah. us how corporations work and all the theory behind it, but they're not teaching us, you know, what is credit? What are assets? What are liabilities? What about our personal money? What should we be doing? There, there should be classes on just explaining all the concepts. So, so many people are confused by the stock market. My goodness, with thousands and thousands of products out there in different ways to real estate too. There are tons of ways that you can invest in real estate mine's just one you know long term sure. buying holds that's one you got flipping you got wholesaling you got lease options tax liens there are just endless ways and that those are the things we're not being taught about our personal finances what we should be doing how credit works what's a credit card what's a debit card i mean all of the above Absolutely. Okay, so now please tell us again. So now you have these, you know, four homes, single family homes. What were the challenges in managing them while being a bartender and while working from time to time? Like, was it, you know, you make it sound very, very easy, but there are people who lose their shirt in real estate. I mean, the market crash in 2008 certainly took a lot of value out of people who were individuals who had owned homes, people who had invested in homes. And then additionally, it took money out of regular people who were not even in the market, but who uh, were invested in the stock market and, and, and experienced the fallout. So tell us, you know, we don't want to, to make it seem as if it was all gravy. What were the challenges in managing those first uh, couple or several properties? Absolutely. I mean, there were challenges at, at every turn. I was super duper young. I was self-taught. I wasn't, um, you know, even in hindsight, I wish I had maybe invested in a mentor, somebody to really teach me the ins and outs. I did it the slow and hard long way, you know, like saving, 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 using all of my own money to invest in real estate. That took time. I mean, the sacrifices of that alone, I was working purely to be investing. I wasn't spending. I wasn't living lavishly. I wasn't you know, going out and partying. I was always working at the bars at night on special occasions, you know, the St. Patrick's Days, the Halloweens, all that fun stuff kids do. Um, 
there were challenges in that. But in the actual, I made so many mistakes. I was super young, as I said again. So yeah, what um, were some of these you mistakes know, you made mm-hmm. investing and in, in, in with your with your initial property? Sure. Well, one thing I wouldn't have done before, you know, if you don't have, especially in Canada, if you don't have a twenty percent down payment, you have to have your mortgage insured. Uh, by it's called the Canadian Mortgage Housing Corporation. Mm-hmm. So I wish, and it was just a matter of maybe, I forget now, it was a long time ago, but maybe less than $5,000. I could have saved so much more, but you know, you still have to pay that mortgage insurance, you know, for the duration of your term loan. Uh, I could have saved so much money there had I just, you know, come up with that extra $5,000. Oh, um, okay. Right? If you, you know, just like, come incrementally you, you lose a lot of money over time. You would have saved a ton more. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so that's a mistake. Um, you, now just, whether, you just weren't weren't savvy at the time. I wasn't savvy at the time. So I get, oh, big deal. It's only adding an extra whatever it was, 100 mm-hmm. bucks monthly. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. no big deal. I get to buy this house. They're giving me a mortgage. I got to pay for it. Like, oh, my God, I'll just take it. I was just so hungry to get a mortgage thinking, like, you know, I, I don't have a high salary. I'm just a bartender. Banks don't really like that. So I was just taking whatever I could get. I'm like, yeah, sure. Sounds great. I was signing all these mortgage papers. I had no idea what any of it meant. This is the first deal. And essentially afterward, you know, I read through every single line because I I like to learn everything, especially when I'm signing my name to it. But it was scary. And there were those challenges that later now looking back, I'm like, yikes. Or learning how to, you know, use other people's money. That's something I didn't know. I'm just like, again, old school, slow way. Like, oh, I'll just use all my own money. I could have had so much more by now. Had I learned that? Previously, down payment. Okay. Absolutely. So another uh, another challenge. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, pardon me. Were there times when you were short on cash, uh, when you were looking for tenants and you were you and you didn't have tenants? Did that ever occur? Sure. So there were times. One of the biggest mistakes I did was that I didn't screen tenants carefully enough. You know, I mean, when people talk to you and they're telling you their life story, where they work, what they do, and they're wonderful people and I would just believe them. I would believe everything they're saying. I, mean, <laughs> okay. I think that's great. You guys seem like such wonderful people. And I got, I got really burned by that. I actually had uh, con artists living in one of my, one of my rentals. Uh, big mistake. You know, I, 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 it cost me a lot of money, a solid six months, just to get rid of them. Oh my goodness! Um, and then find yes, and find new tenants. I had to go to court, and you have to pay for all of these things. We have a, especially in Canada, a little. We have less power than the tenant does. The landlord uh, has less power, so it, it's a lengthy process. But I, it was a simple. I could have done a Google search. Okay, it was mm. that simple, and I would have seen later when I found out. You know, there's newspaper articles everywhere about them being fugitives and getting oh my and stealing money from all these other landlords, and you know, so I wasn't vigilant enough, and that's how you can lose a lot of money. That's my best advice to people when they're uh, investing in real estate and having. Uh, being a landlord and having tenants in their properties is screening is so key because that's where that's your money maker. That's really where it's at free monthly cash flow. And so I did get burned a couple of times and now I'm extremely vigilant and I look into everything. I call all references. I do all background checks and, and you still maybe will never know. There are unforeseen circumstances that can happen that somebody can't pay you rent, but I'm much more careful now because those things burn. They do. I had to use my income to cover all of those expenses during that time. Wow. Okay, then. So, no, we're learning a lot here. So I just want to recap some of the some of the challenges and learning experiences that you had. One of them is that you didn't actually understand 
how to use other people's money. You were doing this all a very slow way, saving money yeah. from your bartending jobs, from your day jobs to get, you know, 20000 or whatever it was for a down payment. That was one potential room for, for, for improvement. Additionally, you were always doing this down payment cash. And sometimes if you had just put a little bit more, if you had just put a little bit more down, you would, you would not have had to have the level of insurance that you had and you would have saved a lot of money. Third, you say another lesson is that you were not screening these tenants well and you needed to screen these tenants because obviously it takes time, energy, money in order to get tenants out when they're not paying their rent and you can lose money. So those were some of the hiccups you had along the way. Yes. So now I would also ask this. Was there a boom that happened in the area? Because it's still, I'm still trying to do the numbers here. You start with three, four single-family homes. How do you wind up getting a, having a multi-million dollar portfolio? How was that being scaled? Absolutely. So luckily, the difference between in my area, well, in Canada in general versus the United States and, and the you know epic crash we had uh, in 2008 and moving forward, um, our real estate values continuously increase. Nothing major, nothing crazy. But what I love about Canada, the difference was our banking is so much more conservative than it was in the United States. As you were saying, a lot of people lost their shirts in America, most definitely. But one of the best things, although I did um, use all of my own money and it was a slow and hard way, what I liked about it is that I never over leveraged myself, mm. which is great. So even when you're refinancing a property to take cash out, you know, most of the any, traditional lenders anyway, they're, they're only going to finance you up to 80%. So you still will always have that 20% equity still in the home. And in most cases, I like to, I'm, I don't like to go past 65% so that I have 35% equity in the home. Because some, some private lenders will give you up to 90, but that's risky. So I was always very conservative. And even though I'm really young and people usually push younger people to take more risks, higher risks, I was always, I like to play on the safe side. So this is why I didn't get burned in any of those situations because, you know, the crash didn't knock, you know, knock the wind out from underneath me because I always keep a, a certain amount of equity in that home. I make sure that my payments are low and, of course, having great tenants who no matter what, you know, can pay you the rent, um, you know, didn't really hurt. Uh, and that's why I think a lot of people lost their properties because, you know, the values went down so much and they were over leveraged that they just couldn't make the payments and it was higher than what the property became worth at that time um no this is this is helpful i think so you're telling us that a few things helped you one the canadian market didn't experience the degree of devastation as no. the u.s market potentially because you the canadian government had more uh assurances in place and a, a, a general safer system i mean here this was driven by yeah. mortgage-backed securities and derivatives right. and securitization after securitization with a market that was basically deregulated so perhaps that deregulation did not happen in Canada to the same extent and therefore you were generally safer but you said your own conservative ways of making sure that you mm -hmm. always had a solid degree of equity in the home from the beginning yeah. and then it also seems as if perhaps you purchased properties that by all accounts were uh, safely valued and not not like yeah. what we saw going on here were homes that were you know 500,000 last year were now be yeah. being said to be worth eight hundred thousand dollars, you know, in just a twelve-month period. So I, 
I think that this is all phenomenal advice. We are going to take a short musical break and then we'll be back with Melanie. Thanks so much. to How to Make It in the City on WBAI in New York City, 99.5 FM. You just heard Pharrell's Freedom. We are continuing our discussion with real estate investor and owner Melanie Bajovic. She's discussing how she used real estate to achieve financial freedom. She is the author of the best-selling book on achieving wealth, entitled The Wealthy Barmaid. Welcome back, Melanie. Thank you. So happy to be here. Great, great, great. So during the first half, you discussed your journey, what you were doing basically in your teens when you were working for your parents and able to save $20,000 by the time you were in your early 20s in order to purchase your first property. You discussed your, your, your process of basically saving, investing in a home saving, investing in the home, and how through that prudence and that diligence, you were able to develop a multi-million dollar portfolio at an extremely young age before you even turned 30. But during this half, I want you to get more granular, please, in terms of what you believe you've learned, your five steps to financial freedom that you lay out in your book. So I'm going to go through the five steps so you can give us more detail. Uh, The first step is real estate provides the best ROI, which is return on investment. Please explain why you believe that. Absolutely. Well, I feel like real estate is, it's not only the safest, investment along with gold, but it also provides yeah, the best ROI because when you're looking at your net investment and the return on that, real estate is by far above any other investment, including the stock market. Um, if you like, I can give you an example uh, what I mean by that. If you're, if you're buying a property that's going to produce income, your return's going to be much higher than, let's say, 5 or 6%. That's what the U.S. Census Bureau says that real estate increases by annually. Mm-hmm. And because we borrow most of our purchase price, we're getting mortgages on these properties. It's very rare that you know we go in and buy, pay full cash for a property. Your rate of returns, they could be like 25% or more. You know, because if you're buying a house at a retail price, let's use, you know, $120,000 and you're borrowing 80% of that, you know, and you're putting 20% down, that's $24,000. Of course, if your rental income is going to cover all those monthly payments and your house appreciates only at 5%, and that's very conservative, 
So 5% of 120,000 is going to be 6,000. So that 6,000 is a 25% return on your $24,000 okay. investment, your, your down payment, right? So where can you get those kinds of returns? The stock market is certainly hovering maybe around 7% for the most part, right? Mm-hmm. Minus fees and everything else. So that's what I mean by that. Real estate truly is not only the best return on investment, it is, it's a predictable investment. You have the most control over that investment. And plus the banks are willing to finance 80% of it for you. I mean, you can't go to the bank and say, hey, I want to put $100,000 down on, on stocks. Give me <laughs> you know, 80000 and sure. I'll put my own twenty. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. So, the benefits are endless. Okay, because it's a hard asset, and they're willing to put 80% down because they know they can always repossess, foreclose on the house, Absolutely. and they're going to have that base uh, investment. They're going to have that house that they can to sell to someone else. So why wouldn't they? Okay, sure. So Absolutely. that's the reason why you are very bullish on real estate. Some people, some wealth advisors are not. You know, Ramit Sethi, a lot of other people who are kind of in the wealth uh, arena and speaking and thought leadership are not. But you are. Okay. So you encourage your followers to invest in real estate. Second, second of her five steps, you have to first earn your money, save it. And then most importantly, you have to invest it wisely. Please give us some more details. Sure. So just as we were talking about my history, this is the formula that I learned from a really young age that works, particularly for building wealth. It is a long-term game. Sometimes it's not very sexy, it's not super quick, it's not all these things, but this is what works. First and foremost, of course, we have to earn money. We need money to, you know, just to have opportunity, to be able to pounce on opportunities when they arise. So that's, you know, earning it and saving it, of course. You know, the old adage is is super duper true, and I've loved this since I was really young. you got to spend less than you make and invest the rest. Okay, yes. so that's it's a really simple, overly simplified way of saying it. But that's basically what I'm saying here. Earn your money, save it. Most importantly, then what we do then is you have to invest it wisely. Just as my father told me when I was 22 years old, I have 20000 sitting in the bank. It's a useless to leave your money sitting in a bank earning what? There isn't, I'm not even going to pretend to give it a number because you're not earning <laughs> that. It's so it's minuscule, it's not worth, it's not worth qua- quantifying yeah. basically, sure. Exactly. So to build wealth, you have to make that money now work for you. And how exactly do you go about spending less? I mean, there are many people listening, and we have this conversation on the show a lot. There are many people listening who are saying, spend less, spend less. I mean, there are all these expenses that we can't control. We need to eat. We need to live. And many people feel yeah. as if they're basically not hardly making it. So please tell us about what, what were the tools you used. Fortunately, you were kind of on your own in the beginning. You were able to build wealth before you got married, before you had kids. You were able to build wealth at a time when you only had to take care of yourself. But please let us know, what are the strategies for spending less so that we can have some money to save and therefore invest? Sure. One of the things I do hate, I I don't like hearing those most financial gurus out there saying, you know, cut out that cappuccino or that latte and save that five bucks equals this much per year. I don't like the thought of depriving myself either. That's no fun for anybody. So I always say, I mean, if there are things uh, that you can cut out that won't affect your life, things silly like, you know, your Spotify subscription and Netflix subscription. I mean, Mm. just take a look and take an audit of your life right now to see are there areas that you can really cut back on, do differently, switch subscribers, don't care what it is, something that's going to help, great. If not, your only other option and my favorite option, earn more. 
That's it. Keep your current lifestyle as you like it. No problem, especially, you know, if you're not overindulging. Because another thing, too, you can't live luxuriously and you can't roll around like a millionaire while you're trying to become one, while you're trying to develop a portfolio or just build your wealth, you can't do it all in the same lifetime, at least most people <laughs> who have you know, become self-made millionaires. You actually explain that. You, you can't, can't do, do it all in the, in the same lifetime, meaning you can't become a millionaire and spend money like a millionaire in the same lifetime because you won't be a millionaire for In long. the beginning. <laughs> in the okay. beginning, right? Because if you're, if you're splurging and you're being lavish, especially in the beginning when you're trying to build something, that's where you're going to run into trouble. And that's why we're, you know, the largest generation right now, especially even millennials, we're in the biggest uh, debt and credit debt that we've ever seen in history, historically speaking. So what's happening now is everybody's overspending, kind of doing the living like the Joneses thing or keeping up yeah. with whatever that one is um, <laughs> in order to display like a high status, high consumption lifestyle and wondering why. But all they're doing is getting further and further into debt. So yeah. they're just consistently paying for their debt instead of investing in their future. So what I sacrificed for the years that I did. Luckily, yes, I was young and I was able to do it and I didn't mind having a no-frills lifestyle. But because of what I did back then, now I can live how most people can't, right? But yes. I did put in the time, the sacrifice and lived without certain things for a while. And it so, so tell me those certain things. For the most part, yeah. it was you were not going out. You were not, you know, you were, you were serving drinks, but not buying drinks for yourself for the most part. Correct. Yes. Yeah, so I, I would keep my paychecks and save it. I'd actually put it away immediately. I wouldn't even look at it. I don't even pretend it's mine. I just knew, you know, it's going towards that. Immediately I'd uh, se- separate all the money uh, for living necessities versus what's going to go over here for, for my investments. And I just sort of, I lived like that because I knew I was doing it for a greater purpose. And I knew that I'd only have to do that for so long. I mean, even still to this day, I invest at least 40% of my income. Wow. That's uh, just something, yeah, I love Forty percent of what me, comes I, in, I want. Mm-hmm. you are investing. Yeah. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Okay. So, and yeah. and then tell us about the earning more. So, for you, I mean, you were extremely hardworking. You had a day job and were bartending at the side. So that's how you earn more money. These days, what are your strategies? How do you make sure that you're earning more? Well, what I try to do, I own as we we haven't really touched on it much, but I own a restaurant bar. And what I, as I mentioned earlier, I noticed that the amount of effort and energy I put into it is directly proportionate to what I get out of it. So if I'm not investing in that business, in creating whatever it may be, marketing, advertising, new menus, new Mm. plating, uh, you know, new bands or teams or sponsorships or events, all this kind of stuff, that's what I'm going to get back from it. So that's how it's a simple, when you're self-employed, you can make as much as you want. It's up to you what you want to make based on whatever, you want to put into it. So I learned right there. It's like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, let's say you want something else or you need something more. I just invest more into that business and it, the returns come back from it. You know, and I also do the same thing with all of my rental properties, you know, and I'm consistently trying to improve them, upgrade them, you know, c- consistently keep the rent going up. Um, you know, all those little things over time, once you have a lot of different either businesses or properties or uh, portfolios, whatever endeavor you're into, you just keep adding value to that. And that's what brings you more income. You can also go start a new business or something on the side. If people have time, that's usually very difficult when people are strapped or working two, three jobs and have families. Uh, But anything that you can do on the side to bring you more income or add more value to whatever current job you're doing now are always just to bring it in, bring it in more. Okay. No, no, no. I like that. And so, 
what you're telling us is that you're earning more for you as a real estate investor and a bar owner operator is putting out some more advertising in a place that you never have, hoping to get more customers from that area and to make more money. You are always doing things proportionally in order to see an investment. And you're not saying that every single marketing endeavor pays off, but you're saying you do it enough and consistently, you see a payoff. Absolutely. Wonderful. Okay, third, choose one investing strategy and master it before moving on to another. Please tell us about that. Sure. So here I find a lot of people, particularly even the entrepreneurial mindset type of people, we always have so many ideas and we're always thinking of new ways and better ways and things that we could be doing with our businesses. Uh, But even people, when they start learning about, I'm going to use real estate in this example, they just kind of want to do everything. So what happens? I find a problem that people say, okay, I want to start investing in real estate, but I'm going to, oh, I want to flip and I want to do a single uh, family, maybe buy and hold. I want to do some wholesaling. Mm -hmm. When they start dabbling into a bunch of different strategies at first, this is where things I believe can go wrong. You're spreading yourself too thin. You haven't learned enough about one particular investment strategy before you're doing five or 10 of them. Mm. And this is why you might fail or you might not become as successful as you want to be. So we all get distracted, like I say, by that shiny object syndrome. But if you don't stay on one path and follow it through to the very end, learn as much as you possibly can about it, how can you do it better, make more money from that, mm. add more value to that and really master the system, you're going to get distracted and your, your results won't be as great as they are as when you focus. So that's why one of my best advice is choose one investing strategy and master it first. Do really well with it. Now you can move on. Just as, you know, doing single family homes that I did first before I did a bunch of those before I even ventured into commercial real estate. Like commercial is a completely different sandbox. Everything's different about it, you know, from start to finish. I'm glad that I, I sort of mastered the single family home strategy first before moving on to another. And that's what created, you know, that's part of the success. Wonderful. But tell us, what is that strategy? People are there like, oh, you mastered the single family home strategy. We want to know. So what was that strategy? Was it just long-term holds and looking at tenants? What exactly was it? Yeah. So uh, my strategy was I wanted single family detached homes. You know, they had their own driveway, their own front yard, backyard. Mm -hmm. I never wanted especially in the beginning, this is my first strategy. I didn't want semis or multi-units mm. and stuff because I wanted to see, I, I'd like, I didn't want issues, right? When you're sharing a driveway or sharing a roof or, or doing a basement apartment and an upstairs apartment, they're awesome for cash flow. Do not get me wrong. I'm just, my first strategy was let me, I like no issues, one family per roof and everything I deal with them is very nice and separate and segregated. So, and what I also mean by um, that was my strategy or that the strategies are different. It's also in the banking aspect too, you know, dealing with residential mortgages is very different than commercial mortgages. Um, Everything from your closing costs, you know, and and appraisals and environmental reports that there's so many more, it's higher risk, higher reward type of thing is with commercial, the lending rules and limits are very different as well. But I, I just don't want people to get bogged down with trying to learn them all and trying to do them all at the same time because they're going to get fudged up somewhere in between. Okay. Okay. This is very, very helpful. Choose one investing strategy and master it before moving on to another. So if you are going to pursue flipping, 
Try your best to master flipping before you focus on long-term single-family home. If you're going to do long-term single-family homes, make sure you master that before you go into flipping or you go into commercial. Okay, very, very good. Next, your net worth is the sum total of the five people you hang around with most. Now, this I've heard very, very often. I would like mm-hmm. you to add some more light to it because many people who are speakers on financial wealth, I mean, I've heard Jack Canfield say this. I've heard John Martini say it. I've heard many people say it, but they don't actually practically discuss two things. Hmm. One, why that's true. And two, how we go around changing our five people so we can increase our net worth. <laughs> so please tell us. That. <laughs> Absolutely. So, who are you, where and with whom you spend your time with on a daily basis, believe it or not, I know it sounds cliche, you know, it's almost overdone so that people aren't paying attention to it as much these days, I find. It, it truly is kind of creating that path of where you're going to be. Why this is true? Partially, when you're hanging around with you know, let's say you're in a small town and all the people you hang around with have maybe minimum wage jobs or they're, they could be struggling. Maybe they're fine. Maybe they're in good spirits. That's not the point here. But if we're talking about financial freedom, which this episode is really about, when you're hanging around that type of crowd, I want to ask you, what are you learning from those conversations? Where are those conversations going? Did your mind grow? What sort of, did it expand? Did it learn a new concept towards what your goals and objectives are? I'm likely going to say no because the a lot of these people is what kind of um topics do you think we're discussing if no if these people are not where you are trying to go what new is going to happen for you tomorrow right i mean you're not going to learn any new ideas when i was really young i was uh i went anywhere i could get my hands on i was going to business functions conferences galas anything i could do especially in my uh, nearby town in niagara falls but also i would travel to toronto And the things that I learned just from being in those atmospheres, hanging around those people, doctors, lawyers, entrepreneurs, like big business owners, just hearing them discuss how they run their businesses or what changes they were making or or what policies in the government were affecting some of the things they were doing and what they were doing to rectify those things. It just expanded my mind. It expanded my brain to, oh, this is how that works. And I'd learn something new, actually multiple things new every time I would be around, surrounded by these people. So I I just saw that, wow, I'm gaining so much value from hanging around these people, not only opening my mind just to dream bigger, think bigger, realize what is possible, because this guy standing next to me is doing it, right? He's doing 100 million a year. This one's just whatever, Mm. 10 million. Doesn't matter. Learning about new industries, learning about just how business works. Also, how they were investing their money, something, again, we didn't learn in school. So I got to hear and 99% of them were investing in real estate amongst other vehicles. But that's what I mean by that. You have to be surrounded at not only the people, but, all, you know, places where you're trying to go because that, that really helps your mind develop and create and craft a little plan of how you're going to get there step by step. Appreciate it's a that continuous so, process. Oh, pardon yeah. me. So, please tell us exactly how. So, you said you were going to business functions because there is someone listening who's working a minimum job, minimum wage job, yeah. who hangs around with mm-hmm. people at work, who goes home to their yeah. modest family, takes care of their kids, right. and they're like, "Okay, where am I supposed to find these millionaires to hang out with and get these ideas?" Right. I mean, there are. I would just. I always 
in my personal experience, I would look up in any city that I was ever in, you know, what are the best restaurants perhaps, or what are the best, and, and uh, how to do this without know, spending money. Uh, yeah. Please let us know that Melanie, sorry for cutting you off, but how do you do that without sure, spending money? No I mean, problem. galas and <clears throat> business conferences are not generally free. <laughs> absolutely. Some sure. are not free. You're absolutely right. Some are not free. Uh, some you have to pay, but some of them, some of them are, uh, there are meetups. There are things like that that I found useful when I was especially in Toronto. But even going to these bars or restaurants, I would just have one drink or a okay. pop or something, and I would sit and listen. I would have just an appetizer perhaps. Um, you know, I would go to these events. I would scrounge up the money for some of them. A lot of them are not uh, too expensive. Some of them are award ceremonies, right, or things like that, or just your chamber of commerce. I would go to my – those are free. These are local events, and every town has mm-hmm, a chamber sure. of commerce. And they put on very good, nice events. Um, and it's just a matter of that networking, just listening. Um, you know, it, it, truly at the end of the day, what it was for me is, is – is observing, listening, I mean, adding value whenever you can if you are in a conversation with somebody and if, if there's ever anything you can do or uh, either connect people or, you know, g- give them any type of idea. I worked for free also, actually. That was another thing. I worked for free in order to be surrounded oh, by interesting. You worked as a, a bartender agency. for free. Okay. Yep. That is I a did. really great strategy. Okay. Three months for free. And they were handling a lot of these um, really high-end events. They were like, it was my, I'm from Niagara Falls, which is a major wine industry. And they Mm. did all of the winery, uh, the wine events in our region. So these were high-end events. There was ice wine galas. There was, you know, ice cuvee galas. There was, um, you know, the grape and wine festivals and all these things that all of the, you know, very successful people like to do in my area. So I got to be there and mingle and now I'm working for the team so it was it was also um you know like I had a I had a purpose to be there so I didn't feel uncomfortable it wasn't like oh I'm just you know sneaking in or something (laughs) I had a purpose to be there so I could talk to people and again listen and, and just mingle rub shoulders with these types of people to learn kind of what they're doing and how they live and how they're investing their money and what kind of businesses are they in, what's successful, what isn't, what's trending, what's not. I would do anything like that. Actually, that's a great idea, volunteering too or just to working for free to, to get your head. Absolutely. So now we're at number five. You must be disciplined, unfazed by fear or obstacles, and most importantly, you must persevere against all odds. So please tell us more about that. Because again, although you've told us about a few hiccups, you know, the, that con artist tenant that you had that took six months mm-hmm. to kick out and had you Googled them, you would have noticed that they were you know, <laughs> absolutely uh, frauds who had done this to landlord after landlord. Mm-hmm. You did tell us about, you know, uh, I, I think that was one of your, you know, the major setbacks that you gave us. But tell us about sure. this perseverance and perseverance and this need to be disciplined and how you were disciplined please give us more so like i mentioned uh my upbringing luckily exposed me to uh, a phenomenal work ethic i spent a lot of time with my grandparents growing up and that's truly what helped at least set the stage for okay we go to work no matter what i mean my family my parents my grandparents myself now included it's it's not a question of oh i don't feel like going to work today i don't feel like doing this that's not an option 
So no matter what, that started kind of my conditioning from a really young age, seeing them go, and especially in the bar industry, you know, a lot of things can happen. There are a lot of liabilities, a lot of issues. I'd see my my father many a times, you know, the alarm company calls at 3 a.m., 4 a.m., it doesn't matter, and he'd drive 30 minutes out there, middle of winter, didn't matter. There's just things you've got to do. And I, I don't know if that's a when you own your own business, you feel that sense of responsibility, that duty, that obligation that you just have to do whatever you need to do. The same thing is true for me now. It's like your child. It's like your baby. So you have yeah. no choice. Um, but there, I don't wake up ever and just, you know, don't feel like going to work. There is, there's no option. <laughs> there's I, no I option. work every day and it's just something you do. That's the discipline part that everybody needs, whether you have a job or whether you're an entrepreneur, whatever it is. It is your responsibility to make sure that that business thrives and that it survives and that it can provide you with what you need it to. And the second part of the discipline, aside from just your work ethic, is now your investing strategy. If you are trying to build wealth, if you are trying to create passive income streams in your life, you have to know that you need to be investing your money. So whether that's you always got to be on the lookout, you always got I'm always driving around. I, I set aside a certain portion of my time every single week and I'm driving around looking at properties. I'm online looking at properties. I'm searching for deals. Now I have more connections and I I've put out the word. Everybody knows, you know, from my bankers to um, you know, accountants to lawyers to whomever it is who when they see a deal come across their desk, they know to call me. You know, at least I can have first dibs or look at so I'm always on the hunt for it. And that's again, it's a conditioned thing. It's a disciplined thing. But I know these are the steps I need to be taking on a continuous basis in order to get where I'm trying to go, in order to really build that wealth, that financial freedom that I'm after. And my purpose is strong enough. I want it so bad that, you know, I I work the plan. I work the system to do it. Um, And again, now the second part here being unfazed by fear or obstacles, huge. It's so sad to me that I see so many people not following their dreams, not Mm -hmm. going after what it is that they want because their self-doubts start creeping in. They're fearful of what could happen. Oh my God. And it's risky. It's this or it's that. Everything we want is literally on the other side of that fear. Of course, as long as you're smart about it and you do things wisely, but you have to. And that you actually also, pardon me, Melanie, you said as long as you're Mm -hmm. smart about it, but but what you're telling to me is not necessarily just about intelligence. It's about the willingness the willingness to face the fear. Yes, that's, that's absolutely right. You have to be brave. You have to be courageous in any endeavor that you're doing or else, I mean, that's why there's the option of just go work for somebody else. Don't have to think about anything. Shut your brain off, you know, punch your time clock. That's okay too. You know, if that's for you, but when you want more, when you're hungry for more, you need to burst through fears. It's like, I always say, I love the quote as an entrepreneur, you know, you jump out of the plane and then you build the parachute on the way down. Wow. Take that leap. You got to, yeah. I love it. That jump. We are ending. Our time is, is, is running out now. Okay. So, But I just would like you to tell our audience members how they can keep in touch with you, how they can uh, keep in touch with your journey and learn learn more about you mm-hmm. and your strategies. Well, absolutely. Um, I, you can, anybody can reach out to me. I have awesome contact form on my website. It's at MelanieBadrovic.com, also TheWealthyBarmaid.com. And please feel free to reach out to me on all the social media sites, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and all that. And my handle is The Wealthy Barmaid. Wonderful. I'm going to spell her name for you all because I think uh, it's, it's mm-hmm. worth it as you want to keep in touch. Her first name is Melanie, M-E-L-A-N-I-E. Her last name is uh, Badrovic. 
B-A-J-R-O-V-I-C. Again, B-A-J-R-O-V-I-C. Thank you so much, Melanie. Thank you so much for having me. This concludes How to Make It in the City. We are grateful for the expertise and experiences of Melanie Bajovic. Thanks so much for listening. I am your host, Ama Karikari Yawson, author of Sune's Gift and Educator. I'd love to visit your school, corporation, or organization, so please feel free to contact me at ama, A-M-A, at wbai.org. That's ama, A-M-A, at wbai.org. 